Okay, okay, that's some of the, that's some enough, that's enough time to talk about conflict, talk about family conflict and board games and stuff, but I am curious, what were some of the worst ones? Just shout them out. Shout Monopoly. Them. Monopoly, thank you, thank you, we're going to get to Monopoly in a little bit, yes, all right, some other ones, some other ones. Scrabble, yes, okay, who, who reads a, thesa a thesaurus, I can't even pronounce that, okay, risk, Yes, risk destroys friendships. <laughs> okay, okay, one more, one more. Uno, uno, especially spicy uno. Yes. Yeah, when you get down to that last one, that last one, and then it's all over, your friend just trades it, it's done. Oh, yeah, we know conflict. We know conflict here. I want to come back to that Monopoly one, okay? Because my family, my mom, tried to get us to play Monopoly growing up, okay? Thinking that we needed, like, family bonding or whatever, okay? Here's the thing about Monopoly, and I will fight you. i fight for this. I won't fight you. Um, Monopoly is made for cheaters, okay? Like, that bank just sitting there... Those, those chance cards just right there, just willing for the take, you know, that you roll it and then you go one, two, three, and you're about to go to jail, and you can go four, and no one's really counting. You guys know what I'm saying? Boardwalk is right there for the taking. You guys know what I'm saying. It's made for cheaters. And my family is certainly cheaters. So every time, without fail, my brother and sister would end up with this, a couple other, another like grand or so that they weren't supposed to have, and it's like, oh, okay, you're a cheater, I'm a cheater, great, bonding. My mom, my mom thought she could get around this fallen nature of humanity in us by buying this game called Cheater's Monopoly. Has anyone heard of this game? This is the worst idea to be invented. Okay, because it takes this idea that we all know that we're all cheaters playing Monopoly, and it says, go for it, whatever, cheat, knock yourselves out. I'm not kidding you, within the third round, I, before I had passed go twice, my sister-in-law had stolen the actual bank. <laughs> and according to the laws of cheater Monopoly, she had the bank for the rest of the night. We didn't talk to each other. Here's a simple law we've all learned from board games, is that we hate being cheated. And we would much rather be the ones cheating than being cheated. I would have rather wanted that bank. I'm not going to lie. And then everyone would be mad at me, but I'm the one with all the stacks. Tonight, the Corinthians had a problem that wasn't as simple as so-and-so, Alec, sister-in-law Meredith, cheated on Monopoly. The conflict might have started small. In fact, it, well, it wasn't Monopoly small. But it started small enough to be trivial and quickly became something serious. And that's what we're going to be talking about. But before, before we get into the text, I want to just show you 
what this is in drama. And so I've asked three of my, my brothers to come out here and just enact, enact this drama. I have no idea, I have no idea how they will do this. So I'm going to be just as surprised as you are. So this is the cup. I'm actually kind of scared. Okay, so Nick has the cup. I will just give you the rolls before you got... I want the cup. Okay, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on, wait, wait, pause, pause, pause. Let me just give you, let me just give you... Time out, time out, time out. Nick is, we're just going to call Nick... Hold on. All right, go ahead. You got it. It's my cup. I want the cup. It's my cup. What? And see. All right, come back up here. Come back up here. Come back up here. Just real quick. Okay, just stand right here. You guys are doing great. Uh, you can keep the cup. You can keep the cup for now. Okay. Okay. In that brief portrayal of drama, you guys have missed your calling, by the way. So we're going to call Nick the victim. Okay. Did a great job being a victim. Uh, a victim. Roll with it. It's your nickname now. Okay. Nick was the victim. Okay. He got the MacGuffin, for those of you who know the plot, the one thing that someone wanted, stolen by Trey, the very aggressive. Um, we're going to call him the thief. Okay. So Trey now took, defrauded what was rightfully Nick's. Okay. And then Jaden over here is the church. Okay, I was trying to, I was trying to tell this before, but it's okay. We're just gonna roll with this. It's okay. No, no, no. It's good. It's good. You did a great job, Jaden. So Nick had the cup. Trey took the cup. Jaden walked by and did nothing. Jaden could have easily stepped in and. Made Trey give the cup back to Nick. In fact, we could say it was his responsibility to make Trey give the cup back to Nick, but he didn't. And scene. Give it up for our boys. You can keep the cup. You can keep the cup. Beautiful, beautiful actors. Okay? In our highly, highly qualified drama, okay, we had the victim... We had the thief, and we had the church, okay? Which would you say was guilty? I'll read them off to you again. The victim, the thief, or the church? Which is guilty? The, okay. In a courtroom, we would probably say the thief. In a courtroom, we would probably say the thief is easily going to get convicted. You guys understand? Paul looks at this scene and says something differently. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6 and read what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11.
before we read tonight, I would just like to say that Christians contain a conviction that when this word is open, that God speaks to us. That this is our authority. That when we're reading this, it's more than just words on a page in a dead book written in an ancient time. But that this is a living testimony of how I know what my faith looks like and how I know about that invisible God and who I'm supposed to be. So this is the word of the Lord, and this is our text for tonight. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge trivial cases? I really want you to see that word. Trivial cases. This, in Paul's eyes, was small enough to have easily been managed before it got to something big. Okay? Don't you know, are you not unworthy to judge trivial cases? Verse 3. Don't you know that we will judge angels? No, I did not know that, Paul. (laughs) It's a little bit fun. I'll keep going and we'll come back to that in a second. How much more the matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you point as your judges that those who have no standing in the church, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes against brother, and that before unbelievers. Okay, what's that deal about angels? What's that deal about judging the world? And why does Paul feel the need to tell them this now, after that scene that we just saw? Paul is drawing off this idea that comes all the way back from Daniel 7. Paul is saying this to these people, to the church, the people that should have stepped in, and saying, you are wise enough. In Daniel 7, it says that the judgment that God is going to enact over the world will somehow involve His holy people. And if you are going to be involved in cosmic judgment, I'm not going to pretend I know the full extent of what that is. But if you are going to be involved in cosmic judgment, then you can judge trivial cases. Do you hear the sarcasm? He's like, you are wise enough. God has given you a discerning spirit. And yet, in this small matter, you have failed to act. You're going to judge angels, and yet you can't act simply with one another. We'll keep going. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. I actually like the NIV, the way the NIV says it. It says, it is already, to have disunity, to have disputes, is already to be completely defeated. Okay? To have this level of being torn apart at each other's throats, not wanting to be around each other, is to be completely defeated in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of God. 
Is anyone from Ada or in the surrounding areas? It's good. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I would have to pray about loving you, okay? Because my sophomore year, 2013, we played Ada in the semifinals of football. Can I tell you the score of that game? It was 48 to 7. <laughs> that is complete defeat. When you are playing the third string in the first quarter, that is complete <laughs> defeat. And that is the kind of defeat that Paul is saying that is what we're seeing right now. And that is against brother and brother. That is inside the church. The people who are supposed to love and die for each other are at each other's throats and not acting righteously towards each other. We'll keep going. Verse 7. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I want you to see his train of thought. He's saying, don't you, like, why not rather be wronged? Instead, you do wrong. And remember, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's God's kingdom. Remember, He provided grace. The whole idea of Jesus Christ coming to save people was so that we could get out of our wrongdoing. That God could say, I can have justice and mercy for people. Don't you remember the story of Jesus in the Gospel? He reminds them of their inheritance. And in the reminding of inheritance, He's saying, and you are in danger of acting like the very thing that you were saved from. And then He goes on to warn them of what they were saved from. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not naive. I know the culture we live in. I know there's some things in there that aren't, not only not popular, but that come across as very hurtful. I understand that. And one, I'm sorry if that offends you. But two, let me just say this. If that is you, that is not tonight's sermon. I would encourage you to come to the next week where we have a speaker who that is part of his story. Not only sexually immoral, not the, the entire viceless. He, he's coming, it's Scott's roommate from back in college, and he's coming to talk and saying, what does it look like to navigate these ideas in a culture that we don't, we don't like talking about these things? It's hard. But the Word of God is trying to tell us what it is to live in God's kingdom. And then Paul ends with his flourish. Remember, the vice list may not be popular, but remember where Paul ends. He says, and some of you, and some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see the Trinity right there working in His people to bring about true righteousness. His redemptive flourishness 
bringing people into the kingdom of God. So, our original question, who is guilty? That's what Paul's argument was. Who is guilty in the eyes of Paul? Remember, we have three people. We have A, the nictum. <laughs> okay? Sorry, I'm going to say uh, A is the thief. We'll come to nictum in a second. The thief. Do I even need to say why the thief is guilty? The thief is so clearly in the wrong that it doesn't even need to be said. The best case scenario in the eyes of Paul is that the thief wouldn't even have done anything. The thief is, is why we're here. He defrauded his brother. He took what wasn't his. The church, we kind of understand. We kind of get why Paul is coming down hard on the church. Not because they were judgy. That's kind of odd, isn't that? Church is seen as judgy nowadays, but Paul is coming down hard on them by the sole fact that they weren't. That they knew the good they ought to do, that they should have stepped into the lives of the people that they said they were over, and they did nothing. You've heard that quote from Edmund Burke. All that it takes for evil to flourish in life is for good people to do nothing. And that is what we see the church doing. Nothing. Their passivity of righteous people. And Paul cannot stand it. The second best case scenario would have been them to just step in and be who they claim to be. But the victim, how is the victim wrong in the eyes of Paul? Where did he go wrong in this scenario? This is a profoundly Christian answer. And that is what we will talk about after the break. So take a little bit and we'll come back. On with our second, our second session. Why... Why is the victim guilty in the eyes of Paul? This victim, guilty in the eyes of Paul. I want to make that very clear. Okay, we're talking about a specific scenario. There is something profound to be learned and applied if we just sit here and reflect for a moment. And I know, I know it applies to each and every one of us because I know what it's like to be a college student. That there is something greater than my rights. There is something greater than living for what I deserve. Why is the victim guilty in the eyes of Paul? But before I talk about that, I want to talk about what this isn't. And just clear the air just a little bit. This isn't victim blaming. You sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Victim blaming in this scenario would be saying that the victim was in some way responsible for what was committed against him. So he should have not been flaunting his cup around. You saw the skit. We're just rolling with the skit. (laughs) The victim... what? 
could, should have done things differently, and he was in some way responsible. And that's not true. The thief was very guilty. No one's arguing that. This isn't victim blaming. This is not a complete denouncing of personal rights. No one is saying no harm, no foul. No one is saying you really shouldn't have called foul in the first place. No, there should have been foul called. The church should have stepped in and done something. And when they didn't, that's the question. When the foul was called, what should the victim have done? That's the question. And this is not a serious legal matter. And I just want to sit here for a second. Paul called this trivial. There are situations in life where authorities can and should be brought into the church. This isn't in Monopoly's term, the church's get-out-of-jail-free card. Can't judge me. I'm going to judge the world. It's not true. The church is a part of the world. The church doesn't get a pass. The church should have stepped in and should have opened it up. And in serious legal cases, it should have gone. The thief should have went to jail if it was major. This isn't a serious legal matter. And so please, I just want to say this, because you never know. You never know what's in, who's in the crowd and what's going on. If you are in a situation of abuse, or you know of one, where personal rights are being transgressed, please, for the love of God, speak up. Tell someone. Because if you don't speak up and tell someone, then that situation will continue to go, and then we are in danger of becoming the passive people who are around you and do nothing. This is not any of those cases, and this is not what Paul is talking to. Paul is saying to this victim in this scenario that surely, surely, you would rather be cheated. You would rather be cheated in the eyes of the world than defeated in the eyes of the Spirit. Like, surely you care more about your brother and sister than being right. Surely you care more about this thing called love and submitting to one another for the sake of Christ than about winning an argument, about getting what is yours, holding on to your personal rights. That is what Paul is saying. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? You see, these Corinthians, Americans, remembered how to be Corinthian but they forgot to be Christian. They remembered their rights, but forgot the cross. And they forgot to live it out towards one another. Are you seeing why Paul had a problem with what was going on with the entire situation? The victim, by living, by enduring just a little bit of shame, just a little bit of reproach, just a little bit of, of a hardship that what happened to him wasn't cool, but if he was just going to take it 
for the sake of his brother rather than exposing his people, his church, and his own brother to whatever was the cost, the fallout of that lawsuit and the splitting of that congregation, rather than making them go through that ugly trial, if he would have just endured it and taken on himself, he would have been a lot like Jesus Christ who embodied that towards the very people who killed him. Who else do you know that died for the very people who killed him? That is why Paul had a problem with this situation. It was a small matter, and there was zero, zero Christian living being acted with this church. So Alec, are you saying that we should put up with one another even when the people that I'm around are way out of line? Yes. Yes, I am. Are you saying that I should allow myself to be walked on? Yes. When you allow yourself to be walked on for the redemption of the other person. Are you hearing me tonight? Because when you just let you, when you just hold out your own, when it's just all about you being right, it's all about you getting your own, you're not living out the Christian faith. You're living out your own kingdom. You're not living out the cross. My brother and sister, as college students, as Americans, listen to me. You don't do this. You don't do this. You only love people as far as your feelings aren't hurt. You only bear with one another until you feel wronged. Until someone insults us, then we feel justified to give people that good old stiff arm. We play the victim card. And that victim card is not what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus Christ did not play his own victim card. And that's what Paul wants us to hear tonight. In your relationships, I want you to think about your roommates. Those people that God has given you to torment you in life. Sometimes it feels that way. You can't escape them. They're in your freaking home. Like, where are you going to go when they're in your freaking bedroom? <laughs> or your coworkers. You know? It's like, like when you're the one picking up shifts again, and you're the one that's picking up the slack and it just seems like no one else is doing their job. Or your classmates in that sick social experiment called group projects. I don't know when the psychology department made that. When you're in all these places and you feel like you're the one being walked on, you feel like you're the one that's giving and giving and giving. Just take a moment and think about the words of Paul. Before you 
Either stand up and give them a piece of your mind, which is some of us' response, or many of our response, to give people the stiff arm and let them go. That's not what you're going to be. That's not what I want to be. Get out of my life. Before you do either of those, listen to the words of Paul. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? For the sake of your brother and sister. For the sake of their redemption, because that is Christian. Our love is very, very conditional. Our love has very, has a lot of specifics on it. And until we become like Jesus, we are not enacting what He has called us to be. Imagine. Imagine if Jesus acted like us and our roommates. You know? You know the story of Jesus? He took the lashings. He took the cross. But then, oh, someone didn't do the dishes. All right, I'm done. You know? He dealt with people who hated him. But as soon as someone disagrees with him, as soon as someone slights him, all right, get out of here. Imagine if Jesus acted like us. Our love is conditional. And Jesus is calling us to love people deeply. To serve people. I want to talk briefly about last year. Because we're talking about conflict. And we're talking about disunity. And I think all of us can agree that last year was the most divisive time that any of us have ever seen in our life. Politics. What to do or what not to do with COVID. I don't even know what else to name. And I'll be honest with you. I'm not here to make another conversation, guys. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of being divided when we should be united on the core things. But I'll give you a confession. Last year, myself and each of us, we took what we believed we were right. And when we thought we were right and everyone else disagreed with me, we just said, get out of here. I've never seen people treat each other so poorly, so unchristlike. Last year, I was guilty of that. Where is the submission? Where is the, the being, serving each other for the name of Jesus Christ, for something greater, for, even if you're right, for laying down your rights for a second for the sake of them, for just facing a little bit of inconvenience for the sake of something greater. That is what Paul is trying to get these people to understand, and my brother and sister, in this divided time, you have to understand this too. Our love is conditional, but Jesus Christ isn't. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated for the sake of something greater? This is profoundly Christian. To have redemption for the other in mind always. Even when you do step in and say something, to have their best in mind. To pray for those who wound you. To love your enemies. 
to bless when slandered, to love those who wound and rob you. That is Jesus Christ, and that is what you are called to. For the sake of your brothers and sisters, how far are you willing to embrace Christ? And for the sake of Christ, how far are you willing to embrace your brothers and sisters? Because whatever last year was, and whatever Paul tells us we were in that list he gave us, I want to remind you that you have been given a new identity. He says that is what you were. He says that you are saints. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. You are the saints of the living God. So please, please act like it towards one another. Or in the words of Peter, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1 22. It's a beautiful verse. It says this, Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. You've been purified. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. And now that you've been sanctified, love one another deeply from the heart. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for this message tonight. This message of unity. I pray that wherever people find themselves, whatever conflict, whatever situations where they either feel hurt themselves or maybe they are in the wrong, God, I ask that you would give them the strength to love one another for the sake of you, Jesus. I ask that you would give them a discerning mind and to fully embody this text. Holy Spirit, I know that you call us to embody unity in a completely divided world. I pray that we would actually be all that we are called to. It's in Jesus Christ's name that I pray. Amen.